Good evening, everybody, and welcome to School Psych Podcast. We're back with another great episode. Very excited for this. Um, but my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, and she's going to tell everybody how we can how you can participate tonight to be part of this discussion and conversation. Rebecca. Hello, everybody, and welcome to participate. If you are watching us live, thank you for being here. We always love having our interactive audience with us. You can just log into your YouTube account and um, post your comments and questions right alongside the video. If you are watching later or if you are feeling like you want to ask a question more privately, you can um, tweet at at podcast psyched, which is our Twitter handle, or using the hashtag psyched podcast. I'll be looking for notifications on Twitter. And you can also message us on Facebook on the School Psyched Podcast Facebook page or School Psyched Your School Psychologist. I can't wait to hear from all of you. And if you're listening later in the week on your commute to work or your not commute, staying home to work um, anytime, just please feel free to continue the conversation over time because our um, videos and our audio uh, exist in eternity and we look forward to continuing learning from each other. And now I'm going to pass it over to Eric. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist in Connecticut. And we are excited to have two guests with us uh, from across the world, depending on where you're listening. If you're near them, then we're across the world, but they are in Australia. And we're excited to have uh, Jared Horvath and David Bott with us. And I first got acquainted uh, with Jared's work through listening to him on a couple podcasts last year and then uh, now becoming more acquainted with his work through the book that they've co-written and uh, as well as through some YouTube videos and things. So we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things this evening, uh, just a little bit about them both. Um, Dr. Horvath is a neuroscientist, educator and author in the field of science and learning. He's conducted research and lectured at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, the University of Melbourne, and over 250 schools internationally. He serves as the director of LME Global, a team dedicated to bringing the latest brain and behavioral research to teachers, students, and parents alike. And David Bott is the associate director of the Institute of Positive Education. As an expert in applied well-being science, David has supported thousands of educators from hundreds of schools around the world in designing and implementing systems-level approaches to well-being. David sits on the Dubai Future Council for Education and has published in academic journals and industry periodicals. He currently serves on the board of Positive Education Schools Association. So welcome to you both. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you guys so much yet yeah, for, for having us out. Um, for, for the people watching, yeah, we're both down under, but you'll see he's got the accent. I don't. I came down under because my <laughs> wife is from Melbourne. You're born and bred, right, David? Yeah, born and bred in Melbourne. And uh, you'll also notice that I'm the only one not in a prison cell as well. That so is, Jared's um, <laughs> broadcasting live. This is my garage. Really. So <laughs> we're all still on lockdown here. And the only place in my house that actually works for filming is in my garage. So it always looks like I'm in cell block A here, but just know <laughs> there will be a dog running around at some point. So thank you guys so much yeah, for, for having us out. Um, like Eric was saying, we, we, we just published our new book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and how we can get them right. Um, and the point of this book is, is fairly simple is, so we're, we're born and bred in education. We've been teachers, researchers, we're all across. We don't by and large think education is broken. For all the people who be coming out in, onto TED Talks and stuff saying, oh, we need a revolution, we need this. 
no way, man. Education, we've never been at a better spot in education. The graduation rates are through the roof. Uh, um, uh, gender and and society gaps are starting to shrink. More people have graduated than ever before. We're doing things right. What this book says is, are there a couple things that we could be doing better to continue to evolve? We don't need a revolution. Teachers know how to teach. School is killing it. But can we continue to evolve our practice to keep up with how things are changing? So don't throw out 85% of school just because 10% is different now. How do we tweak these? So uh, you can probably guess each chapter is a different idea. And we figured we'd kind of dive into two of those key ideas with you today. So I'm going to hand it over to David. We'll start with our one of our ideas, which will be hopefully resonate with, with psychologists, is the idea of mindset in education. Miss Carol Dweck. So David, I'll yeah. throw it over to you. Yeah, thanks very much. And I love the introduction, Jared. Thank you very much. And thanks, Eric, for the, the lovely bio and introduction. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be spending a little bit of time with our American educational colleagues. And um, we, we, we are excited about this. And as Jared said, literally, literally, the very first sentence in the book is education is not broken. But but I'm going to talk to you today um, a little bit about mindset theory, as Jared said. And mindset theory, um, as you, I'm sure you're aware, Eric, you, you're familiar with mindset theory and Carol Dweck's work on mindset. Um, mindset theory is not broken either, and, and it's broken. Let me uh, in encourage you to kind of hold that paradox. Let me talk. You, let me share these concepts with you. So, mindset theory, as you most of you, I'm sure, are very well aware, um, is the most dominant theory that's emerged out of mainstream positive psychology, arguably out of mainstream psychology in the last 20 years, that has got traction into mainstream education. There's no other psychological theory that's had a bigger impact on mainstream education in the last couple of decades than mindset theory. And for very good reason. The number one, let me share with you actually three very good reasons why mindset theory has got such huge impact in education, mainstream education. First of all, we have Professor Dweck herself. Now, Carol Dweck is an incredible researcher based out of Stanford University, but highly decorated researcher who has you know, had uh, dozens and dozens, hundreds of journal articles published, has been researching for 50 years, um, is a highly established, renowned researcher who's done some amazing work across a whole range of different Ivy League universities in the States. And her work um, is not only respected, uh, rightfully, um, but also she spent her, really, most of her working life trying to impact the world in a positive way, and especially trying to impact education, to make education, to make schooling better. So for all of those reasons, we love Carol Dweck. Now, no problem at all with Carol Dweck, right? As a human, I think she's incredible and done amazing work, highly esteemed, highly respected. Tick, right? We like Carol. The second reason why mindset has got such traction in mainstream education is because the theory of mindset is awesome. The theory of mindset suggests that largely we can break people up into two distinctive ways of thinking about ability or talent. If you take any ability that you want to conceptualize or think of, whether it's driving a car or playing basketball or doing algebra, whatever human ability you want to think about, largely people have one of two different ways of thinking about the cause of that ability. Some people have a growth mindset, and those people believe that ability is caused via practice, via hard work, via passion, toil, training. 
And that the people with a growth mindset believe that any skill can be learned. Any skill you choose to set your mind to, you will get better at. There are other people at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps, who have a fixed mindset. Now, those people believe that skills and abilities are largely innate. We're born programmed with a certain amount of tennis ability or math ability or whatever, and really intelligence. We can't really change that much at all, right? So those people have a fixed mindset. Now, as you can appreciate in education, having a growth mindset is absolutely essential for learning. Without a growth mindset, students can't learn. We, and and, vice, and the uh, alternative is true as well, that if you have a fixed mindset, it's it's impossible to learn. If you don't believe you can get better at playing the trumpet, you will never practice and therefore you never will get better at playing the, playing the trumpet. And so mindset is a perfect example of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have a growth mindset, you practice, you get better. If you have a fixed mindset, you don't practice, you don't get better, you prove yourself right. A fixed mindset is devastating for learning. A growth mindset is essential for learning. Now, there's two reasons why so far mindset is awesome. We love mindset. Carol, incredible researcher, mindset theory, absolutely fundamental for learning. No problem there, right? Here's the third reason we love mindset theory, why it's such a cool concept, and that is because mindset is malleable. It can be changed. So if you have a child in your class or a child you're working with who thinks that they're rubbish at math, they can never do math, Mum and dad were terrible at math. I've got bad math genes. Therefore, there's no point studying math. That's just a belief and a thought. And as you guys well know, any belief or thought can be changed, sometimes instantly, right? And so mindset is a belief that can be changed. And the research we have now, a huge amount of research showing that uh, how malleable, how changeable mindset is. And it's especially the role of the, well, the impact of the parent and the educators that have a huge impact on the child's mindset. So even if a child has a horrible, devastating fixed mindset, we can change it, right? So that's cool. So that's one of the, the third reason why mindset is such an awesome thing. Carol's awesome. Mindset theory is essential for learning and it can be changed. We have a lot of power over it, right? Now, I wish the story ended there, but the book wouldn't be called 10 Things Schools Get Wrong if the story ended there. So let me give you three things, (laughs) three reasons why mindset has gone wrong. Here's number one. Mindset Mindset as an intervention, I'm so sorry to say, doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, we... We wish it did because it's like a silver bullet, isn't it, for educators? Like we wish it was so simple that I could just take little Johnny or whatever Janice in my class and she's got a fixed mindset and I just work with her and I get her a growth mindset and therefore she's off and flying and she becomes an academic success. Like we wish it was that easy and we kind of cling to this silver bullet. The reality is it doesn't work. Now, whatever research you look at over the last five years particularly, major meta-analyses that have been done, Carol Dweck's own research from 2019, the National Study on Learning Mindset, whatever large study you look at in the last five years will show you that mindset has zero or close to zero impact on mainstream academic learning in normal classrooms with normal students. It has zero Can I put some da- some data to that, some, some numbers? Yeah. So we're talking yeah. specifically yeah, go, about... Yeah, go. I've got some data here, but you go. Go, throw them in. Talking specifically about 
mindset interventions now. The idea being that cool, I've got a kid with a fixed mindset. I'm going to work with them to give them a growth mindset. And now that they have a growth, do they demonstrate better academic outcomes? And it feels like that should be the case. But time and time and time and time again, we see that when you go through one of these things and measure mindset as an outcome, once you take a look at learning as the further outcome, the the biggest number we have is 0.02 of an effect size non-significant. So although it feels like teaching kids about mindset should make them better at learning, we have zero data. In fact, a lot of data that shows that simply ain't happening. So sorry, back to you, yeah. David. No, thank you. Thank you. And just to, to offset, that, offset that slightly, um, we do have some data that in some very specific situations, mindset as an intervention can improve learning outcomes. Um, but that typically is with um, very underprivileged students or students right at the end of the, the lower end of the learning spectrum or learning capability. Mindset can improve their levels of hope and optimism and therefore incre increase academic learning. But in normal situations, in almost all classrooms around the world, mindset as an intervention has zero statistically significant impact or even clinical impact. It just really has no impact. Um, now, we're good, we'll hold that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But here's the second reason we think mindset is problematic, and that is really that it's overhyped. Right? Not only does it really not work, but it's significantly overhyped. Let me read you three quotes from Carol Dweck herself um, in her talking about mindset. Here's the first quote. Mindset is more important than cognitive factors for academic performance. Mindset plays a, a key role in scientific achievement. And here we go. Mindset can advance peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, it's hard to argue they're not big. It's big hype for a little theory, right? Um, and of course, if you look deep into those, what she's saying, and we contextualize her comments. Yeah, of course, mindset's important. The ability, the idea that humans can grow and change, of course, that plays a role in, in advancing peace in the Middle East, but it's not the solution. And this is, you know, this is where mindset as a concept is, has got way bigger than it ever should have been. It's way overhyped. That's the second reason why mindset is problematic in schools. Here's the third yeah. reason. Can um, I just jump in real sorry, fast? Go, I think go. this is important because so it's it's been taken and run with in schools. As psychologists, as teachers, everyone, we all know this. It's every school is now a mindset school. And where this went haywire is when Dweck in the last couple of years started to say, I'm sorry, you all have misinterpreted my theory. You're using it wrong in schools. No, 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 no. We were using it exactly as you sold it to us. There is a very big difference between misunderstanding and misrepresentation. What was wrong with this theory was it was misrepresented to a lot of schools. And so we can't be shocked when schools ran with it because they were literally told this is it. You will increase grades, you will increase test scores, you will increase sense of belonging. We have found the solution. When it turns out we didn't, the person saying that was misrepresenting her own work. So I, the one thing I can't abide is schools being blamed for taking this on board. Now that we know it doesn't really have any impact on learning or anything, but it wasn't anyone's fault other than the researchers doing their TED Talks saying these big things. It's going to cure world peace. Anytime someone brings up world peace, it's a good sign they've gone over the edge with their theory. And it's time to start reeling that back in. Sorry, back to you, David. Sorry about that. No, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Here's the last reason um, why mindset's problematic in schools, in in real settings. And, and Jared's going to talk in a moment about transfer. You know, mindset, we should, we should have said from the outset, mindset absolutely works in 
in kind of clinical laboratory settings, you know, in certain situations, if you tight the control things and you manipulate the variables in the way you want, you can get some, you can get some statistical findings. But when it translates into real world, this is where it really all falls apart, right? And here's the final point I wanted to make about where we get mindset wrong, and that is that growth mindset, right? Growth mindset, which is essential for learning, growth mindset values failure, right? Growth mindset says we have to be seeking to grow. We have to be seeking to push ourselves beyond where we're at right now. We've got to be embracing failure. That's how humans learn. We learn by falling over, right, and getting back up again. Growth mindset uh, embraces failure. Here's the, here's the scary reality, right, that schools don't. They don't, not really, not really, right? They say they do, don't they? Like, and we have all these schools that are kind of about celebrating failure and we have these dot B schools and these amazing examples around the world of schools that are attempting to celebrate failure. But then at the pinnacle of a child's schooling career, we lock a child in a room, we lock a student in a room, we say, you're not allowed to talk to anyone, you're not allowed to help anyone, don't empathize, just try and beat your friends in a silent, closed exam room. And, and don't fail by the way, and certainly don't fail when you're on the basketball, in, in, in the final of the basketball, in the playoffs of the basketball, and don't fail when you're on the orchestra performance at the end of the year, and don't fail on your tests, right, because we hate fa failure, is a bad thing, but failure is a good thing, like well, embrace failure, but don't fail, kind of, this is the absolute kind of mess, psychological mess that we put students through, you know, educators like me claim growth mindset's important, blah, 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 but then schools in reality, when it really comes to the crunch, we don't value failure, do we? We penalize failure. And this is where with the solution to this and the best schools in the world that are doing mindset well are creating sand pits, clearly delineated sand pits where we encourage, we enable failure, we enable growth, we allow, we, we foster failure. And clearly delineating those points from performance environments where failure is seen as a bad thing. But it takes a lot of nuanced work to really get this mindset thing right. I hand it back to you guys. I'm just, oh, go ahead, Rebecca. <laughs> I, I just had a um, thought about uh, what you were saying, David. You, you mentioned that um, mindset when in a very controlled situation, and probably if it's kind of one on one, if you're taking one student who doesn't believe that they are good at XYZ and you intervene really with what would be very similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, you can make a difference in that student's. Um, motivation probably and and then learning but but what if so if that is mostly true or possibly true or probably true what if instead of thinking of it as mindset interventions for schools we thought of it as CBT in schools for all for all kids which yeah. I, I would jump in I'd say that's um, a fantastic idea except that you all know CBT on a group level is a very, very different beast than CBT on an individual level. So if you just go medical, so let's just take medical numbers on this. Uh, take all the new drugs we develop every year. Thousands of new drugs are developed every year in a lab with one cell or one tissue in a lab. As soon as you scale that and put that in a body with many tissues, 90% of those medications flip and they either become inert or, harm, or harmful. They actually start serving the negative purpose. So there's a big disconnect between individuals and groups, between cells and people. And what we've what we're learning here is one-on-one -on -one CBT offers the time, the 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 ability, the 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 nuance 
to get people to where they need to be. Once we group that and just scale that and say, okay, everyone has the same exact CBT product. It's just online. Go for 50 minutes a week. You're all going to feel good. Wah, wah, wah. And so there's where you start to see that scale up from the one to the school, from the individual student to the class. Really, that's where we get that kind of hit. So although one-on-one is going to be good until we can start doing it one-on-one with everyone, we're always going to have that scale issue. You brought up another good point, Rebecca, about grades. Talk about that real fast. What were you thinking? Yeah, I, I was thinking about um, how schools don't, because of the grading system, it's really difficult to encourage failure. It's not like we put all the Fs on our honor board, you know, in the hallway. But there are some schools and more conversations uh, online that I'm seeing about gradeless um, schools. Um, and you mentioned that there are some popping up. And I wonder how not having grades, but internally, maybe teachers just monitoring progress, but without assigning grades to kids, how that affects a child's learning or both. So we got some, we actually have some really good data starting to come up from that out here. It's exactly what, what you're saying is if you think about it, a grade offers no specific information whatsoever. So when a kid is assigned a grade, doesn't tell them anything, doesn't tell them how they did, doesn't tell them what to do next. It's it's a useless piece of information. Um, I, I liken it like this. When you drive down the street and you hit those stop signs, those electronic ones, or the speed limit signs that say, you know, speed limit 25, and when you drive past it, it says you're going 37, slow down. That's feedback. That's personalized. It references my behaviors, my actions, and it gives me a sense of what I need to do next to reach the next step. Imagine if you drove by one of those speed limit signs and it said C+. Okay, there's no inherent information on my ability, on my performance in there. All it's done is just wrote ranked me. According to all the other cars going by, you seem to be right in the average. Congratulations. So here's where you see that grades are nothing but a ranking tool. It does nothing but organize kids along a bell curve, but it doesn't help anyone learn, doesn't help anyone change. Once you start eliminating grades, um, and you still have, and it's worth pointing out, it, there's a difference between assessment and grades. You can assess without grades. Every time a kid opens his or her mouth, that's an assessment. They're showing you what they know and how they understand it. So there's we're always assessing kids and helping them get to the next level. But it's that final culminating grade or test or exam where once you start getting rid of those, there's a school I've been working with down in, in Ballarat here. Um, I don't know if I should. I won't use the name. I don't know if they want me to talk about it or not. But that was one of the things they did about three years ago. They said, OK, we're done with grades. No more grades. We're done. We're, kids will still have to take standardized tests, but they'll never get the scores. The parents will never hear about it. We'll just get our funding. Off we go. And they, the reason I don't know if he wants us to talk about it is because the parents still don't know this. In the three years since they've given up grades, they've gone from the bottom quartile to the top quartile in Australia on all their scores and marks. But the joke is none of the kids know it and none of the parents know it. The principal knows it and he shares it with me because I think it's hilarious. But once they stopped focusing on performance and started focusing only on learning, learning enhanced. It's like saying it's and it's it, it's not shocking when you really think about it. Like, OK, people play brain training games because they want to get good at an instrument. But the joke is the more brain training game you play, you don't really move anywhere with that instrument. You want to get good at the instrument play the instrument. Ah, oh, now you get good. It's the same thing. Once you strip away performance marks and focus only on learning, kids become really good and open to the learning process and moving to the next step. So it's starting to happen. I think it's it's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, in the next decade as a big movement that's going to start moving. 
if I can, can I say one other thought to that as well? A tiny bit of evidence as well. Grades. This is not just a wishful thinking. You know, five years ago, people would have said, "Jared, you're, you're dreaming. It's never going to happen." But it's hap- it's happening. It's happened. You know, last year in the US, SATs were dismantled, so we stopped using grades. The uh, H, uh, the GCSEs in the UK being dismantled. We have the mastery transcript in the US getting traction. Not a single grade, not a single letter grade anywhere across the mastery transcript. This is happening. Grades are disappearing because they no longer serve a purpose, as Jared said. So we're not just kind of hoping this might happen. It's happening and we are poised now to allow teachers to play a big role in shaping the future of where this is going next. And it's going to be a grassroots. I think all these big changes, if you if you take a look, like, let's even just say any of the 10 things we're talking about in our in our book, the big argument at the offset is that this, this is going to be a grassroots thing, is we keep waiting for that Superman, that big top-down control that's going to say, hey, we've solved it for you. Hey, congratulations, everybody. The government says no more. Grassroots has, well, excuse me, top-down has no interest in changing. The, the government, everything's working fine for them. Why the heck would they want to change this? And all the people at the OECD, they're making their millions of dollars. They don't care. They'll keep feeding us the same nonsense time and time again. The only way things are going to change is when teachers individually start to change it in small groups. So we call this concept skunk works. If you've ever, like, if you ever worked in business, you've probably heard of this term, that when a big business wants to innovate, they don't put everyone onto innovation. They create what's called a skunk works. It's a little group of people who are somewhat they're on the fringe of the company and they're allowed freedom to just go play, work, here's some money, do what you got to do. The idea being that if they invent something good, cool, now we can start to scale it across everything else. But if they just crash and burn, no harm, no foul, the whole company stands just fine because it was an offset so it doesn't impact the broader picture. It's the same thing here. Once we as teachers start thinking in terms of grassroots, in terms of skunk works, me and three of my friends we're just going to start trying some stuff. And a lot of it's going to bomb, but who cares? No one else is going to be injured or hurt by this. We're just playing. Cool. If we find something that's good, now we start to scale it. How do we get the rest of our department on board? How do we get the rest of our year on board? Then we bring it to the school. If it starts working at the school level, then we scale it up to the next school. So rather than coming from a top-down, everyone shift, we just start playing again. We start recognizing that as teachers, as, as school psychs, you are the experts in what you do. No one in the world knows what you do better than you do. And half of the point of being an expert is you're on the cutting edge. You get to play. If you go in and do the same thing every day for the next 25 years, you haven't lived up to the expertise you've owned. The, jo- the job of being an expert is to get to that cutting edge and then continue to push and say, okay, what can I develop that no one in the world has thought before? We're now the knowledge makers when you get to the stage you're all at. In which case, play. That's when we get to play and do this kind of stuff. Well, it's so much fun when we do. We've had conversations here before. What do you say about, you know, um, how research sometimes takes a long time to get into schools and then in other, you know, things, we have these trendy topics that kind of catch on and, and woo, and uh, like growth mindset type of thing and get implemented before the yep. research is out. So when you're talking about the, the concept of playing and kind of like the, that's making me a little bit nervous because I'm thinking about, you know, you know, you follow, you do your peer review, you get the literature, you replicate the study, you, you do all this before you kind of implement it out. But what you're kind of saying is a little bit different, kind of experimenting a little bit. Um, no, not at all. Go back. What, before you do your initial experiment and peer review and replication, what do you do, Rachel? I mean, you, you make a hypothesis. You Before you make a hypothesis, <laughs> all researchers go through a phase called 
exploratory pilot research. We play. All we do is spend a year or two playing with stuff, breaking stuff, and we try and experiment with 10 people and it doesn't work and we go, sweet, on to the next thing. Then I strap a battery onto someone's head over here and I say, does that make you smarter? Nope, cool, on to the next thing. Even science, we go through exploratory uh, uh, pilot studies, which are built explicitly to help us come up with a hypothesis, to help us develop a better understanding that we can then start to scale. So it's the same thing. So when I say play, I don't mean free for all, every man for himself. What, what you mean is feel free to explore. You've got ideas. You've got passions. We've, you've got to start chipping away at those. And sooner or later, why as you chip away... Yeah, yeah. I when I hear that, I think more of, yeah, you know, researchers as practitioners, though, um, that we're not conducting research, do you think? Would, it, would that be the role? No, but you never should. See, here's now here's the big thing. And here's here's where I think a lot of people go off the track is the argument people make is now teachers in school psychs and anyone who works in a school, they have to become scientists. They have to become researchers. And I'm sorry, that's complete and utter nonsense. You want to be a researcher? Literally, that is what you go get a PhD for. That is what I get paid to do in my in my lab over here. So that's like asking a bus driver to also be a plumber. Why? Those are two very different jobs. Now, what happens is each job or each career, you don't have to do research the same way science does it. Every career does a form of research. And the way a career, a profession evolves is that it has a, a what we'll call a body of knowledge a systematized way of presenting information so that everyone who is in that field can understand it and learn from it. So if you go to science, science is the best, right? You have a million researchers doing a million different projects. Yet how do we have coherence in science? Because we all have to present our information in exactly the same way. Whether it's a small study, a big study, a meta-analysis, we all write it up, put it in the exact same journals. We have a body of knowledge that is consistent. And from that consistency uh, emerges patterns and understanding, bigger theories. No one person drives it. It comes from all of us inputting. So it's the same thing then with any other field. Now go to something like anthropology or let's go to law. That's an even easier one. Evidence in law is not the same thing as evidence in science. And when you work in law, you don't do research like you do in science. But what do you do? You gather evidence, precedence, and you get an entire bookshelf of information that says, here's the last hundred years of law. If you want to be a lawyer, go learn that. And then you're going to stand on my shoulders. That's what we need with teachers. It's not about training them to become researchers. It's about how do we get them to systema systematically document the work they're already doing every day. They don't have to do nothing new. What's just our way of systematizing it and disseminating it, sharing it, so we can start to collectively come up with some patterns and say, hey, we all seem to be doing this a lot. What's happening here? So at the end of the day, you recognize that learning and teaching is never going to be solved. Education isn't a problem that we're going to get to the pinnacle of and say, that's it. We've nailed school. Everyone go home. It's always evolving. So how do we just build that evolution into a body of knowledge so that we can continue to grow together instead of all independently? Does that kind of make sense? Yes, yes, totally. Thank you for that. Um, and I think Eric and I, um, too, along the same lines of when we were talking about um, growth mindset, um, we both put in the chat, um, like the, the aptitude by treatment interaction. Um, we've talked about some of that of the podcast where, you know, in theory, it sounds good, but then in implementation. So, okay, the, we test the kid, they have low working memory, let's give them a working memory intervention, and that will help their math. Like in theory, like that sounds like it could work. But then when we have the research that plays out, it's more the skill, it's the math skill 
that you need to be intervening on, not this abstract kind of working memory concept. So I think we made that connection to that. Yeah, and that's the, that's actually a perfect segue because that's a that's what you're looking at there is what's called the transfer dilemma in schools, right? The idea being, it's great that you'd learn something today. How do you move that knowledge and those skills into new realms so as to make this all worthwhile? Like, it's cool that you got an A on my exam. I want you to get an A in life. So how do you take all of this and transfer it? And just in a, in a quick, and I just, cause I think this will be a good thing to think about. And a, the big trick with transfer, human beings and transfer is this. It never happens automatically. Transfer in human beings will never happen automatically. It is a process that we all have to consciously go through in order to make it work. Now, there might be some skills which we call biologically primary skills, things like breathing or, I don't know, heartbeat that might be freely transferable, but we're not talking about those. We're talking about meaningful cognitive skills. All these secondary attributes require effort. So if you ever want to transfer skills knowledge between realms, there's kind of three hurdles you have to jump over first. Hurdle one is the knowledge hurdle. If you want to move your skills into a new context, you first have to understand the facts, the details, the knowledge relevant to that context. In human beings, the way our cognitive architecture works is this, a simple model. Facts always precede skills. I don't care how deep your skill is, how deep your understanding of a, of a creativity or whatever skill collaboration is, until you understand the facts that you need to use that skill with, there is no skill there for you. It's not a standalone thing you can apply everywhere. Facts precede skills. To the point where Kirshner has flat out said, long-term memory is the basis of all human cognition. What we have in here determines what we can do beyond there. Um, so just as a simple example for your listeners. So take the skill of critical thinking, right? You all have this skill. You use it every day in your job. Wonderful. I'm going to give you a simple story. All I want you to do is use your critical thinking skills here. So several years ago, in the Journal of Brain and Behavioral Medicine, an article was published that demonstrated that when neutrinos in the left medial temporal lobe started to spin in a clockwise fashion, this generated a radio signal detectable by bold MRI recordings. Now, using your critical thinking skill, I want you to tell me what methodologically went wrong with that research, or if it's accurate, what does this suggest about how we've been analyzing MRI data for the last three decades? So go ahead, critically think, tell me what's what. I'm guessing the most of y'all, that is 42. 42, the only answer you'll ever need. Now, I'm guessing you can't do it, but the, is it because you don't have the skill of critical thinking? No, it's because you don't understand the facts, the knowledge. Facts always precede skills. So whenever we're talking transferred, the first hurdle you'll ever see, hiccup you'll ever see, is we're trying to move skills into a realm that people don't understand the knowledge of, and the skills disappear. Once you get over that knowledge hurdle, you've taken the time to actually lock down the relevant facts, concepts of a field, cool. Hurdle two is, is contextualization. Here's where you see that every skill changes depending upon the context it's in. So something like collaboration, when you're performing brain surgery, collaboration is a very specific thing. Different people do their expertise. There's almost no talking in the operating room. It's silent. There's pure trust. But anyone can chime in if there's a problem that they see. Everyone has to listen. That's collaboration. Cool. Going to a lab, collaboration is totally different. Now it's just people fighting. I'm going to pit my expertise against yours, and we're going to see whose can make better sense of the data. Same word, totally different skill set. 
go into a uh, like Google where they're innovating stuff, where there is no expertise. Collaboration's totally different again now. Now we just throw a bunch of stuff against their wall to see if we can build a collective expertise. And all three of these examples, you're collaborating, but the actual actions you are performing are very different. So hurdle two is contextualization. This is where you have to redefine your skill according to the knowledge, the facts that you just inherited or understand about this new context. So you get the facts, you use those skills to tweak the definition of each, or those facts to tweak the definition of each skill. Hurdle three then is now you have to adapt your skill to match this new definition, which this is where transfer really hits a tick up because this is a lot harder said than done. <laughs> when, excuse me, I should have said easier said than done. I was gonna say that doesn't make any sense, but there you go. When a skill becomes what we'll call automated, so autopilot, think about driving, right? When you first learned to drive, it was a nightmare. Your arms wouldn't go the same ways. Your feet wouldn't move the same way. Never thought you'd get it. You drive now, come on, we eat, we put some makeup on, we listen to the radio. We're doing everything but paying attention to the driving. Why? Because driving is now on pure autopilot. Anytime a skill becomes autopilot, so run by your basal ganglia, it doesn't even need you anymore those skills become incredibly hard to tweak, to adapt. Why? Because in order to adapt a skill, you have to bring it into conscious awareness, change it, and then re-implement it. Anything that you've been doing for years in one context is real hard to consciously access. How do I drive? And just think about it. Like if you, you drive in the US, when I first moved down here where the steering wheel's on the other side, learning to drive that stick shift was an absolute nightmare. Because every time I sat in the car, I would just go into my old pattern of, wait a second, oh, and I would have to consciously work that adaptation. So that last one, the deeper, the more automated any skill becomes, the harder it becomes to transfer. Now you see the transfer dilemma. Knowledge, context, adaptation. Knowledge, context, adaptation. This process, by the way, in case you're curious, has a much simpler name. It's called learning. If you think about it, the learning process is exactly this, knowledge, context, adaptation, get your knowledge, recontextualize, how do the concepts fit around? How do the concepts move? Adapt, what skills emerge? How do I tweak this information to start building, creating new things? So the learning process ultimately is your ultimate transfer goal, but it's just important to recognize that too often we hope students are gonna do this magically, like automatically. We've taught you all the stuff, now you go to the next class, why can't you do what I just taught you here? because we have a transfer issue. We've got to start from scratch wherever we go. And then go back to something like you guys were talking about, like working memory training. Because of skill adaptation, the better you get at a working memory training game, in a very real sense, it will become harder and harder for you to start to use any of those skills you just developed anywhere else because you're locking them down to a single context. So this gets us thinking about, yeah, if we're training some skill, some idea, some concept, how are we decontextualizing it or doing it in as many random contexts as we can to build a more free flowing skill with the recognition that kids are still going to, when they graduate and go to college, they're still gonna go through the transfer. And when they go from college to uni or to, to the real world, they're still gonna go through the transfer hump. This is what we've gotta explicitly teach them this learning process. So question, so how does this line up with say like instructional hierarchy when we're looking at like acquisition, fluency, and then, you know, that would move into like generalization and long-term retention where you're trying to teach that skill. You want them to be automated. You want that, you know, how, how does that kind of those two things mesh? Yeah, you start to see. So, so the psychological aspects of it go right 
down into that um, that last step, that adap adaptation step. So it kind of goes toe for toe. Um, but if you pull out to the broader pedagogy that teachers and schools tend to use, things like solo taxonomy, Bloom's taxonomy, it's the same thing. It's a recognition that learning isn't a moment, it's a process. And unfortunately, you skip any part of that process, there is no future learning for you. So here's where we start to see that, yeah, solo and Bloom's, everyone's like, oh, you can do whatever you want with them. Technically, you can. You can do anything you want with anything. But if you want people to learn, it is almost like a roadmap of if you have to start at these steps and then we can move into these steps. So you start to see this thing with like um, exploratory learning or problem-based learning and stuff. These schools that just say, hey, let's, let's just go right into deep creativity, invent something. Well, that's cute, but no kid is actually going to be learning anything in that instance. And we have all the data to show it. They don't learn. All they do is do stuff. If you want them to learn from a pro project or exploratory, whatever, step one is front loading with learning. Lock the learning down, the information, the thing most people don't want us doing anymore. Don't teach kids stuff. Well, if I don't teach you stuff, then everything else just becomes busy work and you won't leave with any better understanding or comprehension as before. So once you recognize that we start with the facts, that then opens us up into project-based learning where we say, now that we have the basic information, how do we want to reconceptualize it over here? How do I want to build something off the back of that? So it kind of aligns, yeah, right with that Bloom and Solos kind of stuff. What do you think of Dave? I realize I've been talking too long. I'm, I apologize, everyone. No, I, I no, thank you. I love it. No, I, I was just wondering, um, Rachel, if you wouldn't mind, I'm really fascinated by a comment that, that popped up a moment ago about the anxiety and grades and, um, uh, and also linked to, to this transfer dilemma, I think a little bit, but the reality, the reality of real classrooms, um, and this comes back to the professional teacher, the expertise of the teacher, right? And whether you're worried about learning or transfer or growth mindset or um, anxiety or whatever it is, that the only experts in teaching are teachers themselves, Right, because it's not you, Rachel, because you're not going to spend a thousand hours teaching math this year like the math teacher will. You're not the expert math teacher. And of course, we should look to tertiary, you know, university studies. We should be looking to empirical data. We should be do doing peer reviewed journals and stuff. And we should be reading those. We should be understanding those. But the reality is that, and we've alluded to this a few times in this call, that teaching is a craft it's not a science it's not replicable even because it, it's a craft like it literally every lesson is unique you know and another way to think about this is that teaching is the opposite of science the science by its very definition is trying to isolate and eliminate variables great education great psychology is about embracing variables celebrating those variables working on those variables and that's why cbt works at an individual level and it almost doesn't work at a, it's very hard at a group level it doesn't scale because you start to forget the, the variables are unable to to play a role you know once it get, goes to scale and so the craft of teaching when i think about the most important moments in my career as a student at high school they were that was mr dean who put his hand on my shoulder one day after my parents got separated when I was 12 years old. It was, you know, uh, uh, Dorothy that this incredible teacher that I saw just not, uh, not tell a, a student off when they got, when they did something they shouldn't have done because she knew about the history of the child and she knew how to manage that child. So it's what she didn't, it's invisible. 
you know, the, the most beautiful parts of teaching and, and psychology, I think, the most beautiful parts of education are invisible. It's the invisible beauty of great teaching that makes this a craft, right? And, and that's why the, there's this mismatch, misunderstanding about the science and education. And this is why we feel the skunk works, like the experimentation in our laboratories are happening in classrooms because we are experts and that is our laboratory and they are our chemicals that we're manipulating, playing, we're trying to understand, trying to improve. And this is why really ultimately this book we've written is about elevating the, the status, the standing, the self-efficacy of educators because it's, they are world-class experts in their field, which is teaching. That is a unique, isolated field. They should be encouraged to experiment. And we should be looking at what Carol Dweck's saying out of Stanford, but you are an expert in teaching math. So stand up and be an expert. You know, seek to grow, seek to challenge yourself, seek to learn, but appreciate that you are the world-class expert in your craft. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I appreciate kind of the, I mean, we've had guests on that, that I think, and maybe I'm misinterpreting them, but have I think said a little bit of the opposite with, I guess, that say that, you know, if you're using things that are not proven experimentally and under control conditions, like how can you expect it to work um, under, I, I, I get that you're saying the opposite here, um, yeah. but, you know, um, we've had a guest that equated that to educational malpractice when you're using things that haven't been proven that th this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing it and you need to stick to yeah. the things that we know. What? Can I take a guess that that person isn't a teacher? Yeah. It's, that's all you'll ever hear. You'll, you'll only hear that argument from people who have never actually stepped foot in a classroom. You will never hear a teacher make that argument. But it, the, the scary thing is, for some reason, teaching is the only field, the only craft we have that everyone and their mother thinks they understand. I work in a uni right now. Every neuroscientist thinks they know a bit more about teaching than teachers do. Every psych, every politician, every lawyer, I understand teaching. Because I've taught a lecture once, ha ha ha. I, I think no, that, you know. especially because we've all had teachers too, you know. Yeah. So we all I know a million teachers, so I must know. And it's a thing to recognize for people because my brother thought the same thing until we started working together. Is when you see a teacher teach, you're getting the performance. It's the same thing as watching um, a football match on Sunday afternoon, right? You're seeing the performance. What you're not seeing is the yeah. six days and six years and six decades of training, of work, of effort, all the coaches, all the players have put into this one moment. We catch three hours and think, oh, I can do what they can do without ever recognizing that. No, that three hours is a culmination of so much work. And it's the same thing with and teachers. You, you, is you can. Let, let me let me just create a tiny bit. Like I, I can yeah. do dentistry. Like I, I've got a dentist. I've been going to the dentist for 40 years of my life. I've seen a few dentists work and I can do some dentistry. I can. Like, genuine, like Rebecca, just open your teeth. I'll be able to clean it a little bit. Like, I can be a dentist. Uh, to you some can extent, imitate. In the same way. Yeah, well, no, I can do kind of a crappy superficial version in the same way anyone can be a crappy superficial teacher. But the yeah. beauty of the craft, as Jared said, like it's not the, the, the mal professional malpractice or whatever that phrase is so infuriating um, and so true. Look, there are some rubbish teachers. Let's be honest as well. There are some pe people who shouldn't be teaching. There should be people, who, there's truck drivers who shouldn't be driving and there's politicians who shouldn't be in politics, right? Across every spectrum of the field. But the vast majority of educators, and I've worked with over a thousand schools, worked with tens of thousands of educators, a vast, vast majority of them are incredibly 
profession at their craft. They choose this because they want to, they choose this profession because they want to nurture the next generation. They love children. They love humanity. And they are working out tirelessly to become better at their craft. And therefore, let's, they need to be recognized. Well, they need to recognize themselves as world-class experts in their field. And of course, read Dweck. But Dweck knows nothing about teaching about math compared context. to a teacher who's spending a thousand hours each year in the classroom with kids looking into the eyes of children, you know, so that's, they are. Experts. You just nailed it. Dave. That's what, that's what I like is this, it's this translation issue where every field interacts with every other field. Say bye. My dog's leaving now. Bye Ruby. Every field interacts with every other field. It's, it's what we do. You, you can't not pick up a book on uh, architecture. Why? Cause it's interesting. I pick up a book on, on history. Why? Cause it's interesting. But nobody presumes that when I pick up a book on history, that's going to tell me how to do neuroscience. Nobody assumes that when I pick up a book on psychology, even, that that's going to tell me how to do neuroscience. What everyone recognizes is when I pick up a book from a different field, it's going to give me some cool ideas, some new concepts to play with. But ultimately, I am the only one positioned to determine what does any of this mean for me and my profession. And for the most part, professionally, we all recognize that. We let everyone do that. Teaching is the one profession where it seems every book I pick up has to tell me how to teach. Otherwise, it's useless. And anyone who's done research has to dictate to you how to teach. Otherwise, they don't know what they're doing. It's like, no, you guys know how to teach. You know, you've been teaching for years, for decades. You got this. Use what I do. Use what everyone else in the world does as a concept and then adapt it for your profession and say, here's what this means for teachers rather than asking the question. And I think they've been browbeaten. This is my big fears. I think teachers have been browbeaten so long that they just ask for the answer. What is the recipe you want me to follow this week? Yeah. What do you want me to do? And that's this why week? that's why mindset. That's why mindset's got such traction because it provides an easy solution that solves the problem for me. You know, it's, it's exactly bold. right. I, th I think the other thing Jared is on that, that, that it's about the complexity, the number of decisions teachers make, you know, is increasing exponentially as well. And and so there's a level of exhaustion there where we just want the easy solution. So we read mindset, it's cute, has high face validity, makes so much sense. And now we have literally, literally have schools built on mindset theory as their founding purpose, you know, because it, it's like a, we wish it would work, but it doesn't. And the, the problem I have with that, too, is if somebody gets stuck, then the, the, the end result or the end thinking is that there must be something wrong with you then. You, you didn't grow mindset enough or you, you know, you're, you're yeah. having a problem. Well, you just need to growth mindset a little more. <laughs> and that is yes. um, go do this. It's your problem. Yep. You didn't right. think hard enough. Right. That was, I was, I was thinking it's, it's interesting and this is a, a little personal. So, well, bear with me. So my wife and I have been trying to get pregnant for a long time. And it's the same thing as where we have a lot of family friends that are like, you're just thinking yourself out of it. You're not thinking hard enough to the point where now when you, you don't get pregnant for six months and you start to go, am I not praying hard enough? Like, what am I not doing right intellectually when you start to recognize it? No, Hey, some of this stuff is out of your control and it's okay whether or not your body wants to respond in this way at this time it, you, you can think there's definitely some power to thought but you can't put everything on your shoulders as that is your problem with thinking yeah. you keep working you you open up other avenues and you just keep chugging along you know what's interesting too can i was thinking about this the other day no you cannot david okay you can go <laughs> <laughs> can i just say just i want to just go one step further and 
with with the greatest respect because I love Americans and there's four of you on this call and people listening. But from an Australian perspective, um, I think part of the problem with mindset as well, this to your point, Eric, is about this meritocracy thing, this American dream kind of thing that if you work hard enough, you can get there. And there's a lot to be said for that. But there's also a lot to be said for luck. A lot to be said for a, thing, a million other variables that are outside of our control. And I think in some part, it's the American dream, that this American mythology that's contributed to this, to part of the problems with this anxiety and the, the, the clinging to growth mindset and the belief that anyone can do anything. It's just untrue because of luck amongst a million other things, right? And so I, I blame you Americans. No, it's, it's untrue because I, 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 you, know, you contribute so much to education, psychology and, you know, Love you guys, but I think that little bit of the American mythology is part of the reason why this growth mindset thing is taken off when it shouldn't have at the level it has. And it's I, I I'm see I'm I'm because I'm American, I like it. And and to be fair, I've never seen research that says otherwise. This is where where I stand on mindset is why do I want people to have a growth mindset? Because it's accurate. <laughs> it's for the same reason yeah. I want kids to to believe that the world is round and that water is two hydrogen, one oxygen. Why? Because it's accurate. It's our understanding of the mm -hmm. world right now that all things being equal, the more effort you put into a task, the, the more you can learn that task. There is, so far as we've seen outside of physical limitations, there's never been a trait or a skill that some human being can't hone through work within their particular context, within their particular uh, preferences. So ultimately, yes. Now the question, I think where, where it goes over the line is when everyone says, well, can you become the best? Can I, can everyone become, I don't know, a Novak Djokovic? Well, probably not. But, but the point is in most fields, anyone can get in the top quartile. It just, it takes different times for different people. And this is where the giftedness comes in. Some people will, will learn something in 10 hours. Some people will require a hundred hours to learn that same thing. And the trick is to recognize that if you happen to be one of those hundred hours ones, the solution isn't, uh, well, that's it. It's not for me. I'm not learning. That's it's. I'm not working hard enough. No, you just, it's a timing issue. We all need different amounts of time and effort into each thing. So just keep chugging and sooner or later you'll get there. Just like me and driving in Australia. You just keep putting the pedal down and one day it becomes easier. And the next day it becomes easier till now I can't drive in the US because I'm so used to doing it out here. When you think about the difficult stuff we all learn, there's an, but I see what you're saying, but can you become president just by thinking about it? Heck no. Well, <laughs> God, you know, that, careful, that careful, sentence used careful. to make perfect sense, but not, I guess an argument could be made that now just by thinking about it, you can do it. But, but I still, I still like this idea. And I think so far as the research yes. shows, there is a growth mindset because we can all do this. There is no. Yes. But we also do, do need to acknowledge socioeconomic variables, health variables, yeah, you know, genetics, or, you know, so many variables that come into that. It's not an equal playing field. It's not just about working hard. And, you know, it's, it's not, that's not the only factor I think is the point. That's where you get your really timing issues. Absolutely. Well. And some but things be, like growing hair doesn't for you work. To, to know. By the way, can you guys tell how we wrote a book? We just sit here and just. They need to wrap the show up, Jared. For hours on end. And we just come up. It's nearly, but I'm, it's nearly Easter. I'm working Christmas. on a. Um, on a documentary now on genius. And interestingly, um, <laughs> if you look at child prodigies and gifted students, almost none of them go on to become what we would classically categorize as an adult level genius. So there's, there's a difference between the learning and the performance. The idea being that, yeah, what gifted kids do is they learn really fast, but once they learn, they don't seem to do much with it other than continue to cycle what it is they've learned. Whereas 
other human beings takes them a lot longer to learn stuff, but those are the ones that because of that time, that duration, once they get to the next level, they keep pushing. And so now when they're 40 and they're creating new things, a lot of gifted students are 40 and continuing to do things, which is fine. I mean, I'm not, there's no judgment call there, but you tend to see that if you, all you did was look at one subset of people, students, you would think that, yep, some definitely have a, a lead over others. But when you look at the long game, no, it looks like some what we once thought was a, uh, a necessity becomes actually a hindrance. And what we once thought was a lack actually becomes a benefit. It all just kind of evens itself out. You took a breath. Sorry, you took a breath. Go, Rachel. <laughs> now. Awesome, awesome. And I, I hate that we are running short on time, but I want to ask if there's any last minute questions. And then I know that your book covers so much more than we were able to talk about. Is there, can you give us kind of some some highlights of, of other things that schools are doing wrong and, and kind of answers to this or? <laughs> yeah, so if you, if you look, so <laughs> and if anyone, if anyone's interested, if you can go look, our book is available everywhere. Or if you look at, uh, my brother said, if you go to lmeglobal.net, there, there's a link directly to the book pages that you can buy and look it up with, with videos and stuff if you want to learn more. But if you look at the 10 things, most people want to know what the 10 things are. So you have expertise, which is recognizing expertise in teachers. You have evidence, which is recognizing that science is different than practice. Chapter three then is on grades. So a whole chapter on what's going on there. Chapter four is homework. Five is mindset. And Dave, do you remember the last five? Yeah, six is 21st century skills. And the, the problem with why we chose those specifically, uh, computers and technology and the problem where computers are being misused or, again, overhyped. Um, rewards, which is my, probably my favorite chapter, the problem with coercion, how extrinsic motivation is harming learning. Uh, organization, the problem with structure and the way that schools structure the day and the historical reasons why school started at 8 o'clock and finished at 3 o'clock for no apparent reason. Uh, and then the purpose is the chapter 10 is on purpose, the, the problem with narrative, that really the big questions about why. And then the outro, you know, which is the outro is the skunk work stuff. This is our kind of solution. This is our... Um, way to empower expert teachers to make a difference, to cause change, because we are the system, right? So let's let's change the system, and we can do this uh, one class at a time, so one teacher at a time. So that's our kind of our outline um, moment of inspiration around Skunk Works. So, so there you go, ten chapters. Might be ten more coming. Maybe a sequel, Jared. Who knows? Ten more things school gets wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness! We'll definitely have to talk again too after that one. <laughs> I um, love it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I don't know, Eric or Becca, if you have any last thoughts that you wanted to jump in with. Or... You know, I've loved this conversation, and I really would love a part two sometime if you're ever uh, interested. Yeah. Maybe pick a couple of other topics and have a, another conversation. Absolutely done. I I had a good time. We'll make sure we don't talk too much next time. We won't. <laughs> That's why we wanted you here. All right. <laughs> Sorry. We love it. Thank you guys so much for having us on. Thank you. And a plug for your Thank YouTube you. channel. I know you have a lot of um, where you go into kind of looking at uh, uh, research articles and whatnot, and you you break down a lot of concepts in like six or seven minutes. And um, yes, yeah, so if you go, yeah, if you just it's just my name, Jared Cooney Horvath on YouTube. Yep. Every every two weeks, I try and come out with a new. What I do, it's called from theory to practice, take a new research article, translate it for teachers to say, here's what this might mean for us on the ground. So yeah, little six, seven minute little clips every couple of weeks. So if you want to keep up with new science of learning trends, just another resource you can tap into. Wow. And follow us on Twitter. 
Twitter. Um, Twitter as well. So it looks up on Twitter. We have some good arguments and discussions on Twitter. Um, <laughs> can, can I just um, finally say as well, thank you to the work you guys are doing. Um, yeah. You know, this kind of work is so valuable in allowing voices from around the world, you know, to, to have a platform to share ideas. And so it's such a privilege to be part of um, your show. Thank you so much for in the invitation. And, and finally, just thank you to school educational psychologists in, in Australia, around the world. I mean, you guys are angels. I think the work you do, dedicating yourselves to the well-being of, of, of our students is probably the most important most beautiful profession on the planet i think educational psychology and teaching it you know so thank you to all the work you do um really really grateful i think you guys are amazing all right, thank, thank you. you. And everybody will be back on 321 um, with Anna and Elisa. We'll be back to talk to uh, talk about pronoun use. Um, so that'll be fun. So hope to see you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye.